1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here.
2: And I'm Gabby.
1: And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis?
2: This app is Google Maps for Ancient Rome. You get detailed maps of over 5,000 ancient sites and monuments from all over the Roman Empire, from North Africa to Northern Britain.
0: Click on those sites and you'll get detailed information on history and context, including over 300 contemporary texts giving you the perspectives of the ancients in their own words, plus pictures. This is an essential travel app for anyone who's a huge history nerd. If you love to explore ancient sites when you travel, you'll always know what historical sites are around you, exactly how to get to them, and never get lost again. I get lost all the time. This is important to me.
2: Of course, many of us can't travel right now with the pandemic, but the Time Travel Rome app lets you explore virtually. And if you happen to live within the bounds of the ancient Roman Empire, the Time Travel Rome app could show you dozens of historical sites you may not have known were there. Get to know the history of your area while you wait for the world to open up.
0: There's even a feature where you can see ancient Roman roads transposed over modern highways and roads and modern maps, so you can really follow in the ancient Roman's footsteps. Get the Time Travel app at the App Store for iPhone and Google Play for Android. Check out timetravelrome.com for more information.
2: This was a cauterizing fire. Her army is coming. You've heard the rumors. You and the other women who live in Kamala Dunham, though they do not call it that now. You've gathered at the well in the mornings, Exchanging hushed and panic news in the old tongue, not the bastard Latin. Your mother used to say that the king of the Iceni was a peaceful man, wise and slow to anger, but now his queen Boudicca rules and she walks with the warrior goddess Androste. She will cut the lying tongues from every Roman mouth. She will scorch her vengeance into the earth. Part of you wishes you had the courage to run to the edge of the city and welcome her. Because you feel a kinship, You've heard what the Romans did to her and her daughters. They've done the like to you and your own sisters. The Romans have taken from all of you. Your husband tells you not to be foolish, that Boudicca won't make exceptions for women who live with Roman soldiers. Of course, he isn't Roman himself. His homeland is beyond the sea, in a land called Thrace. The Romans took his land, enslaved his people, and he tells you the only way he avoided a life in the mines was to enlist in the army. 20 years he served in their war machine, and this city, your city, Kamala Dunham, this was to be his retirement. When he bought you at the slave market, you never hated anyone more. Now he has made you his wife. You told yourself that this was the best life you would get, a girl of the Trinovantes, whose only alternative is slavery. But now, Boudicca's army gives you a dangerous hope. Her army is on the horizon. The rich of the city have fled. To Gaul or Londinium, but your husband has stayed. There is nowhere for him to go. Not that he would, he doesn't believe in running from a battle. Now the army is here. Your husband tells you to run, to take refuge at the temple of Claudius. The walls are strong and new. It is defensible. He will see you on the other side. You gather with the other women and children, a few of the city guard to defend the doors. At first, the atmosphere is hushed but confident. The men have been through worse. They all have tales of surviving sieges or sacking cities. This will all be over in a few hours when the ninth legion joins their forces. Those who can eat, those who are afraid, whose terror is too great, drink unwatered wine. Some sleep. You wait. You think it is night but cannot be sure. You have thought of what you'll do should the man who forces you to call him husband fail. You'll fall upon your knees and ask Queen Boudicca to take mercy on you, to allow you to join her army, to find others from your tribe and liberate them too. You've rehearsed the lines over and over in your head. Now you can smell the fires. At first, they were far enough away that you weren't afraid. But now, they are so close. The dim light from the oil lamps in the temple cast ominous shadows on the walls. Everyone is quiet now. And then the noise comes, the sounds of clashing swords, the calls of horns, the cries of men fighting and dying, fierce and frantic just outside the doors, a great booming crash as you hear them try to force the door. And then nothing. The doors have held. And for a moment, you are grateful to the Romans and this hideous, horrible building. Everyone starts to laugh and cheer. But then the sound starts up again. Axes and swords hacking at the doors, and always the smell of burning drawing closer. Everyone falls silent, and suddenly there's a new sound. The sounds of feet scrambling from above, the crash of shattering tiles. They're on the roof. I'm Jen McManamy.
0: And I'm Jenny Williamson, and this is Ancient History Fangirl. And we're back! That was a real cheery intro. (laughs) Yeah, so Jen
2: has been spending all of her third British lockdown in Roman Britain during Boudicca's Rebellion.
0: You know shit has gotten really bad when she started referring to herself in the third person, like Julius Caesar?
2: Oh yeah, like the dude who just likes to pop into the podcast if you say his name three times. You're warned, Jenny, we've got it once now.
0: He doesn't appear to be counting. (laughs) You know, this isn't about him.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you try telling him that.
0: Anyway. In
2: our last episode, we laid the seeds of Boudicca's Rebellion. We told you about how the Roman conquest of Britain was shaping up in the 60s AD, how in the west of the UK, in Wales, a rebellion led by Druids was keeping the bulk of the Roman forces very, very busy. While in the east of the UK, mostly in Norfolk, Essex, and London, the Roman forces were very understaffed. Believing that the British tribes in the East were subdued, or at the very least, in an uneasy peace with the Roman colonizers, the Romans felt that they could focus on other things besides maintaining a muscular military force there. So muscular. Gaston levels of, you know, Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. I've now got the Gaston song in my head.
0: Just stop there. Just, you know what? The word muscular was clearly not the right word.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Who wrote this episode? Oh, wait.
0: I think that was my edit, though. I'm sorry. It's my fault. (laughs) (laughs) So
2: mainly what the Romans were doing there was collecting crippling taxes and calling in extortionate loans from their allies, because that's how you be a good friend to your allies.
0: As you can imagine, this whole extortionate loan collecting and crippling taxes and shit, this did not engender good relations between the Roman oppressors and the tribes that they were oppressing. The tribes now allied to Rome, some voluntarily or, you know, with a gun to their head voluntarily like Boudicca's tribe, and some because they were conquered, were furious that the Romans wanted to collect on quote-unquote loans which had been given to the tribes, possibly without their consent, possibly without them realizing that they were loans and not bribes or gifts to begin with. And we go into that in more depth in the previous episode if you want to know what the whole deal is with these weird loans. And into this toxic stew, we have a final fatal ingredient. The king of the Iceni. Are we calling him Pastasaurus or Prostegosaurus? We've called him both. I feel like you're Prostegosaurus
2: and I somehow always go to the pasta.
0: All right, I'm just going to stick with Prostegosaurus, but I have no control over what Jen does with her mouth when she's talking about this dude. So, Prostegosaurus. <laughs> Kicked the bucket. He went tits up. He shuffled off the mortal coil. He's dead. His reign had been a long and mostly prosperous one for the Iceni. He'd been appointed by the Romans after the Iceni's earlier rebellion, and then he would led his people through turbulent times, and his dying wishes had been to keep the peace with Rome by leaving half of his kingdom to the emperor Nero and the other half to his daughters. The Iceni
2: didn't have problems with women inheriting kingdoms, but the Romans had other ideas. They refused to honor Pastasaurus's will. He was, after all, only given the right to rule because the Romans had appointed him. He had no rights to pass along his kingdom or his property. His kingdom and everything in it belonged to Rome. And besides, women weren't people, especially two underaged girls. So the Romans, led by a man named Decianus Catus, or is the 10th. 10th of his name. <laughs> Refused to honor Apostasaurus as well.
0: I actually looked into this when we were editing this podcast, and I'm not 100% clear what the rules were in ancient Rome about women inheriting property. I think there were times when they could and situations where they could, but I don't think that that was true throughout the Roman Empire. I'm not sure if it was true then, but I also kind of don't think that in this instance it was about who was inheriting the kingdom. I think they just wanted the kingdom, right? So number one Yes.
2: I mean, essentially what they wanted was they wanted money, or I'm assuming they wanted to enslave people, but I think the Iceni had some natural things in their area that they wanted. And this was just an excuse to come and take that from them. But the reality is that pastasaurus, which is ridiculous to call him that, but that's what I'm calling him. He was a client king, and at this point in time, he may or may not have been given Roman citizenship as part of his being a ruler here. And what he did with this will, believing that he had the good faith of Rome, who was his ally, was say, right, as a person who has rights in Rome and rights in my country, this is what I do with my property. These are your rules. I'm following them. You can see his logic here. The problem is the Romans just... Do what the fucking Romans want to do.
0: Well, the thing about citizenship, the general thing that was happening in the very early first decades of um, Britain as a Roman province is that the Romans were giving out citizenship to some of the people in Roman Britain, some of the tribal British leaders. And they would give out that citizenship basically to influential tribal leaders that they wanted to keep on side. And Prostegosaurus absolutely would have qualified. One of the things about being a Roman citizen in Roman Britain is that Roman citizens including Romano-British Roman citizens, got to leave property to their families in their will. Whereas if you did not have citizenship in Roman Britain and you were a British person, you were not allowed to leave things to your family. Everything you had went to the Roman state. So I do kind of wonder if he had citizenship and believed he was allowed to will things to other people and the Romans just trampled all over that in this instance. Or maybe he didn't have citizenship And just kind of misconstrued things and no one pulled him aside and told him about this rule that he had to leave everything to the Romans. But I kind of think he would have had citizenship because he's the kind of person at this point who would have. He was an influential in the region, Rome-appointed tribal leader.
2: I think the reality is he believed that he had citizenship and he had the right to leave this to his children with his wife as regent. Or else he wouldn't have written a Roman will. Like, he honestly believed that he had this right. Whether or not the Romans also believed it, there was a change in leadership or whatever happened, Pastasaurus believed he was playing by the Roman rules. He was telling Rome how when he was gone, he wanted his tribal kingdom to be ruled. And he felt that if we are allies and I am keeping the peace and I'm going to ensure smooth transfer of power, this is how it will be done.
0: Right. I think it makes more sense that he had citizenship and the Romans were just trampling on it than that he didn't.
2: Yeah, but we don't know, but that is what I think.
0: Again, we don't know.
2: (laughs) No, because the Romans didn't tell us, because why would they?
0: Because it makes them look bad if that's what happened. That's why they wouldn't tell us. (laughs) I mean,
2: don't get me started. So when Pastasaurus's widow, Boudica, decided to challenge the Romans' decision to ignore her husband's will and take her entire kingdom from her and her daughters, well, all hell broke loose. The Romans flogged Boudica, and her daughters were raped by Roman soldiers. And the Iceni people rose up. We don't know exactly how the Romans were booted out of the Iceni lands or villages, but we know that shit went down. Because the Roman forces who'd arrived to collect on that fraudulent loan were booted out of Iceni territory pretty quickly.
0: We can just imagine there was much blood. Maybe some heads were lost. The Celts did like to take a nice head or two when they went to war. That was kind of their thing. It was their thing. I mean, look, it was their love language. Look, if you're not taking heads, are you even at war? are you even? (laughs) Anyway, whatever happened, the Iceni were done playing nice. They were done being ruled by Rome. They would tried it the Roman way. They would tried it the peaceful way. There was only one way left. All out war. So that's where we left it in our last episode with the Iceni preparing for war. And before we get to what happened next, we have to turn our attention to the Roman settlement at a town called Camelodunum, close to Iceni territory. So we started to tell you about Kamala Dunham in our last episode, but to really understand what this town represented and why it's relevant to Boudicca's story and the conditions she lived in, we have to delve a little more into it.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A whoop, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast.
0: But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts.
1: I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from world war ii
0: they had no idea that she was britain's top female codebreaker.
1: we'll hear of daring risk takers what she was offering to do was to ski in
2: over the high carpathian mountains of course it was dangerous but uh, danger was his friend
1: subscribe to history's secret heroes wherever you get your
2: podcasts <laughs> Camelodunum was the capital of Roman Britain. It's easy to think that Londinium, the precursor to modern London, would have been the capital city. It's further inland, it's closer to both the east and west of the British Isles, but Londinium wasn't the capital. The Romans put their capital in Essex, near to the sea, and also to the Thames and the estuary that gave the Romans access to cities and towns further inland. Camelodunum was originally a native British town. Before the Romans got there, it had been the stronghold of local tribes. First, the Trinovantes, then the Catuvellauni and possibly other tribes as well as possible, this particular bit of land went back and forth and changed hands.
0: I believe it was the ancestral town of the Trinovantes tribe. And then the Catavolani, led by Caratacus, possibly Caratacus' father, I'm not 100% sure, took it over possibly around the time Claudius' legions were coming over. At one point, it was Caratacus' stronghold, but I don't think it was like, you know, rightfully his. But it was the Trinovantes' ancestral town, from what I understand, right? Yes, and it's possible that
2: for a time the Trinavantis were allied with Rome because they wanted Rome to help them get their land back, and Rome, much like a vampire, wanted an invitation into the homeland for a justified war. Come on now, they wanted to Dracula this shit.
0: Oh, they totally wanted to Dracula this shit,
2: you're so right. So anyway, the town of Camulodunum had significance to both of these very important tribes, but it was also the sacred town of Camulus, the British god of war. And he was a slow-to-anger god of war. Not at all expansionist-minded. He was more about the protection of his people. He was here to support you and keep you safe. Maybe put some CBD oil in your tea, and then if if he must, he would rise up and slay your enemies.
0: Oh, man, Camulus is just my type of war god.
2: He really is, because he would be there, like, quiet, and you'd be like, Oh, is this guy ever going to get angry? And then once he got angry, you better watch out. Camulus is coming for you.
0: Look out.
2: There will be no survivors. Yeah.
0: Prior to Roman occupation, when it was controlled by the Trinovantes and then the Catavallani, Camelodonum had been a pretty built-up Iron Age Celtic city. It had a series of protective dikes and ditches, you know, like a dike is a turf barrier thing. With water, I imagine. Did it have moats? Just gone with what it said. I
2: just always imagine a dike is like a dam and it's holding back some kind of water or moving water around but it could
0: be wrong i kind of pictured this as like just it had some earthworks
2: but i could be wrong on that we could all be wrong archaeology doesn't exactly know because boudicca burn layer
0: right so it had a series of protective dikes interpret dikes as you will and it was the biggest tribal settlement in the area interestingly was not a walled city though
2: It wasn't a walled city. It was the biggest like tribal area, but that makes sense because they didn't wall their cities.
0: This was not a hill fort at the time.
2: No. And the interesting thing is that the Romans didn't actually take the time to wall the city themselves. Unlike Londinium, which they did wall.
0: That's going to become important later. Anyway, so Camelodunum was not a hill fort. It was an unwalled city with a series of protective dikes, which might be earthworks. They might involve water. Unclear. It was the biggest tribal settlement in the area. According to Vanessa Colingridge in her book, *Boudica*. quote, Camelodunum became the largest settlement in Southeast Britain at around 10 square miles in area with a series of protective dikes for defense. Although essentially not much more than a large farm with some specialist zoned areas, the settlement had an importance that was political, religious, and economic in nature with its own burial grounds and a mint producing a range of coins. So essentially, the Iron Age city of Camelodunum had everything that a Roman settlement needed ready-made. It had strong defenses, a position controlling important waterways, it had rich farmland. All the Romans had to do was come along and appropriate it. And that's what they did. They pushed out the British tribes living there, and they took the land for themselves. And as we've said, this was a great move for the Romans. In addition to getting a well-defended location that controlled major trade routes and waterways with great farmland besides, this town and its surrounding area was culturally important to the British tribes. It was the sacred stronghold of Camulus. The fact that the Romans controlled it now sent a message. Not even your god of war can defend against us. So there
2: was one drawback to Camulodunum for the Romans, though. It was a British town. Probably not carefully planned the way the Romans liked their cities. But if the city wasn't exactly up to Roman standards, well, they could fix that. They could grid out the entire area and make it perfectly planned. And according to Vanessa Cullingridge, that's exactly what the Romans did. Vanessa Collingridge wrote an excellent biography on Boudicca, and she was one of the main sources for this episode and the series in general. And I just want to make sure we shout her out in the podcast because she was integral to us being able to tell this story. So here's the quote, quote, slowly but surely, Camilla Dunham became a typically Roman town. However, rather than erase all signs of its British past and start the town from scratch, The Romans built their legionary fortress and a number of other military buildings, but left intact many of the key features of the Iron Age settlement, some of which are still visible today. Although relatively few of the invaders would actually have come from Italy, let alone Rome itself, the Romans were essentially an urban people with cosmopolitan ideas. On top of that, they were a people who were used to colonizing new frontiers, almost like painting by numbers. They had a well-established culture of town planning, with many provincial settlements following a basic plan involving a mix of military, economic, social, and religious functions.
0: Here's the part where we take a pause and talk about the Roman colonial machine. Rome had gotten colonization down to a science at this point in its empire. It knew exactly how to go into a foreign territory, subjugate the native population, and then go about setting up a Roman province. It actually had a step-by-step plan for this. First, you went in with your soldiers, with your legions and legions of fresh fighting men. And if possible, they went in and exploited pre-existing tribal conflicts to get some of the tribes on side to conquer other tribes. And they called that making peace with the tribal people because they were allying with some of the tribal people to subjugate other people.
2: Absolutely. What you did was you went in, you made some kind of uneasy alliances, as Jenny said, by exploiting tribal conflicts or cold hard cash and bribes like let's be honest not everyone is above being bribed and if that didn't work you just sent in your fucking roman war machine
0: right and after the war you had to build the idea of a roman town according to vanessa colingridge in her incredible book Boudicca, quote: but much more important than just creating the look of a roman town was creating the idea of one out would go the old ways of bartering tribal obligations and local fiefdoms in would come denominational coinage, a capitalist economy, and loyalty to a distant emperor. The key to Romanizing the new provinces, however, was in designating towns as coloniae, a place for retired soldiers who were given, or basically just took, parcels of land for housing and allotments for subsistence. And this was far more than mere land-grabbing or imperial largesse. By establishing a colonia, the authorities knew they were deliberately spreading Roman ideas like a virus throughout the body of Britain— Though the initial invasion may have been violent, the cells would slowly breed and spawn Roman culture throughout the land until the host country was completely overtaken. She really makes it sound like a parasite invading someone's body. It's a fantastic analogy, though. Yeah. Once the new province had been sufficiently Romanized, there was little, if any, need for continued military action within its lands, freeing up the army to keep expanding ever outwards the frontiers of the empire. So can we pause a minute and just take a look at what she means by the idea of a town?
2: Yeah, I really want to break this down because this was one of the things that blew my mind when I read it, okay? Here's the final step in Roman colonization. You had to set up a town, but it wasn't just this process of building a town, brick and mortar shops and houses and stuff. It was the psychological idea of creating a town.
0: What does the idea of a town mean?
2: So here we go. It's essentially willing a Roman town into existence in a foreign land and forcing the native peoples to accept it, to accept and live by Roman customs, to see this Roman town and everyone in it as part of another kingdom who had their own customs and who were actively forcing those customs onto their neighbors. Okay, so how did that work in practice? So here's how it worked. The Romans chose strong locations for their towns that dominated local trade routes, and they brought their own merchants from all over the empire. Not to mention, they were the ones with money and land now because they'd taken it all and impoverished you and your neighbors. And this means that if you were a British merchant in Roman Britain and you wanted to trade at all, you had to trade like and with the Romans.
0: Yeah, they were controlling all the trade routes and they had all the money. So you had to deal with them and you had to deal with them their way.
2: Exactly. And by dealing with them their way... You were being forced to take their customs like a virus and bring them back to your people because it was difficult for you to go back to your people and explain why you made a certain deals with the Romans that they might not see as being satisfactory because the Romans now had all the
0: cards. It certainly would set people against each other within native British communities, you know. So gone was the ability to barter and trade. If you had something you wanted to sell, you sold it for cold, hard Roman coins or you didn't sell it. If you wanted to buy something, you bought it with cold, hard Roman coins or you went without, which means you had to have something valuable to the Romans, whether it was something to sell, something to trade, whatever, your skills. You had to have something of value to sell to the Romans to get their money. "'Your own tribal coins and money would be useless in this environment. "'Your tribal standing as an aristocrat in a Roman town meant nothing. "'To the Romans, you were all one thing, barbarians, "'and your worth was all equal and equally low in their eyes. "'You got with the Roman agenda, or you found yourself unable to trade?' unable to interact, and eventually unable to live in your own land. The name that the Romans had for non-Roman citizens living in lands that they conquered, like local people who were not Roman citizens in the land that they conquered was peregrini, which I believe meant foreigners. In their own land. In their own land. Yeah. So gross. And who were the brave Romans who were tasked with implementing this final step in the colonizer's handbook? Veterans.
2: The Roman army was very diverse. Soldiers could come from anywhere in the entire empire, and along with its own military, the Roman army included warriors from client kingdoms and conquered peoples, serving in units led by people from their own tribes or countries, fighting their own native styles, and these were the auxiliaries. Both the legionaries and the auxiliaries needed somewhere to go when they retired, and Rome needed to keep its borders strong and expand their presence in conquered areas. So there was a solution, the Colonia. If you enlisted in the Roman army, you were promised land when you retired, but you wouldn't have any say as to where that land was going to be. The Roman army liked to settle its veterans in Colonia or towns built especially for that purpose in recently conquered territories, usually on the outer fringes of the empire.
0: Settling veterans on the fringes of the empire giving them the farmland and peaceful retirement that they'd been promised, allowed Rome to keep their newly ill-gotten territory with minimal force. Veterans were uniquely used to living in unsettled or recently conquered territory, so they were used to the instability and they were skilled in fighting. Should some kind of aggression by the native peoples break out? Well, you had seasoned warriors in your towns. All they had to do was put down their farming tools or whatever else they were doing and protect their new homes at moment's notice. Actually, though, a lot of the time, This was not the empire just giving the veterans farmland and a peaceful retirement. What they'd do is they'd send them to these territories where their colonia was supposed to be. But then the veterans had to essentially take their allotted farmland away from people who were already living there. So they were basically sent to appropriate their own retirement land.
2: This wasn't a peaceful process and it wasn't as clear cut as the Romans would like you to believe.
0: So in addition to the veterans who lived in these Roman towns, you would have a mixture of tradespeople from various other areas in the Roman Empire, Roman high-ranking dignitaries like governors or procurators and their families and servants and slaves, and you'd have Romanized British people. Some of these would be people from tribes who had sided with the Romans, or maybe those who had been conquered but who were now trying to make lives in a new Roman-controlled area, attempting to trade their goods, skills, or labor to the soldiers in the colonia. The Romans would have had a regular income, so they might have seen this as their only option for making a living now.
2: Absolutely. I mean, if you were a baker or a butcher or I don't know, (laughs) things involving trade of goods and that weren't like necessarily being a farmer on the land and you needed to sell the stuff you had, even farmers, I suppose, you had to be with the people who had money. But more I'm thinking people who like made imported things.
0: I mean, yeah, because the veterans got a stipend as well as land. Is that correct? I believe they had a
2: stipend as well as land.
0: So they had like regular income, which as we talked about in the Hadrian's Wall episodes, that was not common in the ancient world world, especially not, I feel like, in a conquered area where everybody, like, local people would be impoverished now because the Romans took all their shit.
2: But you also have to remember that Camulodunum in particular was important because it was kind of one of those, like, gateways to mainland Gaul.
0: And the British traded with Gaul a lot. So that would have been really important. Yeah.
2: And most importantly now, the Romans traded with Gaul, because how are you going to get all those things like olive oil and, and the good wine and all the other luxuries into Roman Britain if it doesn't go through Gaul? So let's get back to these British towns. Some of the British in Camelodunum would have been slaves, either taken in war or bought after at a slave market in the town, most likely. Many would be women who had been bought by the soldiers as slaves and later forced into marriage with them, because that is a very real thing that happened. And also the children that they had with these soldiers, these like hybrid families, would all be in this town. So that's what the people who made up the city of Camelodenum would have looked like. Retired soldiers, wealthy Romans, and Romano-British, British people who'd been Romanized. And most likely, a good amount of enslaved people or people probably forced into marriage by veterans who wanted a wife and a good life and kids because it's all awful. It's all fucking awful.
0: You weren't technically allowed to be married in the Roman army, although a lot of people had common law marriages.
2: Yeah. So essentially, you came there as a single guy in, I guess, your 40s or whatever, 30s, 50s, however old you were when you got out of the Roman army, depending on when you went into the Roman army. And you wanted a wife and you wanted kids and you wanted someone to look after you in your old age. And so you bought somebody. You bought somebody because the ancient world is awful and women are property. Anyway, it's important to understand what the city looked like and who the people who lived there were because their lives, such as they were, were about to be obliterated by Boudicca's army. <laughs> Now, let's return to Boudicca. She had survived her flogging, her people had booted the Romans out of their village, maybe even out of all of their territory, and now she was out for blood. She had tried peace, and now she would have war.
0: Boudica put out the call and started gathering allies to lead an anti-Roman resistance. And the first potential allies she turned to were her neighbors, the Trinovantes. They also had a real raging anti-Roman agenda particularly against the veterans who had settled in Camelodunum, those assholes in particular. Tacitus explains to us chillingly well, quote, The bitterest animosity was felt against the veterans, who, fresh from their settlement in the colony of Camelodunum, were acting as though they had received a free gift of the entire country, driving the natives from their homes, ejecting them from their lands, they styled them captives and slaves, and abetted in their fury by the troops, with their similar mode of life and their hopes of equal indulgence. More than this, the temple raised to the deified Claudius continually met the view, like the citadel of an eternal tyranny, while the priests, chosen for its service, were bound under the pretext of religion to pour out their fortunes like water. So here's the thing about what Tacitus is explaining here. He is explaining Roman colonization from the colonizer's own mouth. Tacitus was the son-in-law of Agricola, who was the architect of British subjugation. And at this point in Boudicca's Rebellion, he would have been a young man just starting in his career, and he possibly would have been involved in some capacity with one or both of these uprisings. We don't know for sure, I don't think, but that's a theory.
2: All of history in general, it's so easy to forget or confuse names and people, particularly Roman history. But the Tacitus Agricola connection is really, really key here.
0: So anyway, the Trinovantes were furious because the veterans living in the new colony, ironically called Colonia Claudia Victricensis, or the colony or city of the victory of Claudius, had started pushing out and taking more and more of their land. Like, what is the fine print of getting the peaceful retirement that all these veterans were promised? Like, they were promised a peaceful retirement and some land, but that land wasn't going to be empty when they got there. Like, a lot of the time, they had to drive the previous occupants off of that land, so they have to commit violence to get their retirement territory anyway.
2: I mean, in theory, they were supposed to only stick to the land that was actually given to them by Rome, right? Rome went into wherever it was, and they made these agreements with where the land was supposed to be, right? Right.
0: But there still might be somebody on that land that they'd have to kick off.
2: So in theory, no one was supposed to be there. But the reality of the situation is people were there. And then what happened is that in addition to people being in the land where they got kicked off, a lot of Romans were like, yeah, but you have a bigger plot or I want this plot over here. So in addition to this land that they'd maybe agreed with the tribes to appropriate, you know, they just took it really. In addition to that, what is galling and infuriating is then the veterans decided... But we want more land. Like, we each could have slightly bigger farms, and we each could have more. Who is there to stop us? We'll just take more and more and more. And that is a real thing that happened. Because, like I said, there was, in theory, land that was supposed to be for the veterans, but that land always wound up spiraling further and further outward. Yeah. So, slowly, the Romans took everything around them, and anyone who pushed back was dealt with violently, until everything, as far as the eye could see, fell under Roman rule, whether it was land that was originally, in quotation marks here, agreed to be a settlement, or most likely not. Or, you know, as we've talked about before, there's a lot of Roman willful miscommunications that we come across. So what happened here is that the remaining Trinovantes, who used to have the area around Camelodunum as their home, were forced to flee, or they were taken into slavery and subjugated. And to make matters even worse, the Romans forced the Turnavanti nobles, who had status in their own community and some wealth, to work as priests at the temple of the deified Claudius and to actually pay out money for the privilege. They had to worship their oppressor as a god. They had to pay out their fortunes to help build this horrible, gaudy Roman temple. And it was just a really awful fucking scene, man. Not only had the Romans fucked about with taking the land from the Trinovantis, land that was sacred to the god Camulus. Now, they wanted all the Trinovanti nobles to pay for the privilege of being colonized. Nope. Nope. There's a great squid of nope going off into the distance.
0: (laughs) Squid of nope. Spraying its ink everywhere and disappearing in the ink cloud.
2: Of nope. The
0: ink cloud of nope. (laughs) So, when Boudicca put out
2: the call for rebellion, the Trinovantis were the first ones to enlist. A lot of people like to say that Boudica got lucky with her early victories. And I can understand that interpretation as you see it from the ancient sources. But I would say there's another case to be made here. Boudicca, much like Spartacus, who we talked about last season, understood her enemy. She understood who she was up against and just what the Romans would do to her and all those who followed her if she wasn't successful in her rebellion.
0: She had just survived what would have probably been a flogging or scourging as a precursor to a crucifixion. She'd just watched as her daughters, princesses of their tribe, were carried off and raped, which may have been a precursor to execution. She knew exactly what was at stake, and she knew that no one was safe. The Colonia existed to try and force the native British to live by Roman rules, but Boudicca now knew that the idea that the native British could live beside the Romans as allies was a fallacy. Roman allyship was a myth, because at any point in time, the Romans could change the rules, and you and your family could become a target. But she also saw how fragile Rome's hold was on her homeland. All the seasoned legions were off fighting in the West. The people left in her area weren't exactly the cream of the crop, and she knew that. She knew that it was now or never for her people. If she could take on the Romans here, on her home turf, and win, she had a chance of joining up with the other rebelling forces in the West, and maybe, finally, getting rid of the Romans for good. So, when she called together the local tribes to go to war, she was preparing for a winner-take-all, take-no-prisoners, leaving behind only flames and bodies, war. war.
2: Scorched-earth-war. Burcingetorix-style War.
0: Strike while the iron is hot because the Romans are busy in the West. They're going to support that rebellion by setting fire to the East. Anyone who found themselves in a Roman city was a colluder. Man, woman, child, enslaved, free, Romano-British, or Roman. Boudicca and her army were not out to make friends. They were not out to take back their land. They were not out to explore the nuance of being British but having to survive in the Roman world and make concessions and use the Roman money and use the Roman language and function in the Roman world. They were not interested in all of the excuses. They were out to slay the oppressors and anyone who had sided with them.
2: The strategy here, because a lot of times we hear Boudica had no strategy. Let me tell you, the strategy here was scorched earth.
0: And that's a real strategy and it makes sense. Vercingetorix used it. Yeah, and if this war had been
2: successful, it would have been a war of attrition where literally Boudica and her army just made it so difficult to hold this British province that they would eventually leave. And you know, that wasn't the worst strategy. We'd seen that happen with Julius Caesar. Boudica has an utterly epic call-to-arms speech that was written by Cassius Dio, but there's no way that Boudicca actually said any of the things in the speech. First, these speeches were famously written as apocryphal speeches, written in the future, put into the mouths of people in the past to comment on the present or some bit of history that the biographer, historiographer, whatever you want to call them, wanted to say about that moment. And Dio, as we've said before, was writing about 175 years in the future, and no one kept a transcript of what Boudica actually said. Because no one was taking notes, no one was writing the shit down, but the speech itself that Dio has given her is such a commentary on everything that Dio wants to get across about Rome at that time, and probably in his own time. And I really struggled not to put the entire speech, which is like, Four pages of just bashing so many Caesar and Nero and Claudius. I just wanted it all in because I'm such a nerd. Jen
0: was sending me snippets of this for a week and I finally texted back. I was like, Boudicca didn't say all this shit. This is just one Roman throwing shade at another Roman. I
2: know. And I was like, don't you just want to talk about it in depth on the podcast? Do you want to nerd out with all of
0: our listeners? You know, that would actually be kind of a fun Patreon episode. We do the whole speech and just talk about it. Let's do it. Okay, I'm excited. <laughs> anyway,
2: so here are the highlights of Dio's speech that he gave Boudica to inspire her tribal allies on the eve of their first battle. Like I said, it's so fucking ridiculous, but here we go. This is just a small snippet. Quote, have no fear whatever of the Romans, for they are superior to us neither in numbers nor in bravery. And here is the proof. They have protected themselves with helmets and breastplates and greaves, and yet further provided themselves with palisades and walls and trenches to make sure of suffering no harm by an incursion of their enemies. For they are influenced by their fears when they adopt this kind of fighting, in preference to the plan we follow of rough and ready action. Indeed, we enjoy such a surplus of bravery that we regard our tents as safer than their walls and our shields as affording greater protection than their whole suits of mail. As a consequence, we, when victorious, capture them, and when overpowered, elude them. And if we ever choose to retreat anywhere, we conceal ourselves in swamps and mountains so inaccessible that we can be neither discovered nor taken." Our opponents, however, can neither pursue anybody by reason of their heavy armor, nor yet flee, and if they ever do slip away from us, they take refuge in certain appointed spots where they shut themselves up as in a trap. But these are not the only respects in which they are vastly inferior to us. There is also the fact that they cannot bear up under hunger, thirst, cold, or heat as we can. They require shade and covering, they require needed bread and wine and oil, and if any of these things fails them, they perish. For us, on the other hand, any grass or root serves as bread, the juice of any plant as oil, any water as wine, any tree as a house. Furthermore, this region is familiar to us and is our ally, but to them it is unknown and hostile. As for the rivers, we swim them naked whereas they do not cross them easily, even with boats. Let us, therefore, go against them, trusting boldly to good fortune. Let us show them that they are hares and foxes trying to rule over dogs and wolves.
0: So this is just the highlights of a very long anti-Nero, anti-Caesar, anti-Augustus rant that Dio goes on. We're going to do a Patreon where we give you the whole thing and make extremely uninformed commentary on it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to drink wine, Jenny's going to drink wine, and we're just going to throw shade on Dio and history and it'll be great.
0: So what I see in this is a lot of... um, Roman stereotypes about quote-unquote barbarian people and how they can survive in cold and heat and they're really tough and sinewy and they can survive all these privations, which is actually a stereotype that led the Romans to enslave people like this in larger numbers and put them in places like latifundias and mines, which were the worst places to be enslaved because they had this reputation among the Romans. There was this stereotype of them being physically tough, you know, whether or not they were physically tougher than anyone else in the ancient world or not. So I see that in this. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: And that's why I wanted to include this, because remember, Dio is giving us these words. So this is not a speech. It's an apocryphal speech. Boudicca never made it. So as much as it's like saying we're tougher, we're better, we're stronger, we're superior to the Romans in strength and everything else, what it's also saying is like, because of these things, we are less civilized and the Romans eventually will be able to colonize us and make us have this horrible life once they finally enslave us. But I think it's important to show what the Romans thought of the ancient Britons and how they saw them in addition to all the dark shit.
0: And also, there's a flip side here. It also shows, if you take some of this at face value, it does give you a little bit of a glimpse in how the native Britons may really have had some advantages over the colonizers because there was this narrative in ancient Rome that the Romans adapted super quickly to Roman Britain and they were doing really well over there. But according to this speech, the Romans had not been adjusting as well to the British province as maybe some of their sources had led people to believe.
2: Yeah. And again, that does aggrandize them eventually because they do manage to
0: colonize
2: Britain but I think it is kind of important to see that in my book, and we're going to talk about this in our next episode, Boudica gets a lot of shit for not being a strategic person. But there was a strategy, I think, behind what Boudicca was doing. And Dio is kind of on my side here. He's saying we have advantages and there is a way forward to potentially maybe take on the Romans and win.
0: She's picking out things that they would have been terrified of. Romans have strong walls. They have better armor. They have all these weapons. They have all these advantages. And she's taking those advantages and turning them into weaknesses to inspire her army. A lot of stuff is happening in this speech.
2: I mean, that's why these speeches are so important and they come down to us today and why they're such a fascinating tool we have to understand the people of a different time, even if it is told from the colonizer's point of view.
0: So after this epic speech, Dio tells us, quote, when she had finished speaking, she employed a species of divination, letting a hair escape from the fold of her dress. And since it ran on what they considered the auspicious side, the whole multitude shouted with pleasure. And Boudica raising her hand toward heaven, said, I thank thee, Andraste. So, according to Dio, Boudica released a, a rabbit. She had a rabbit in her shirt. her dress she had a boob bunny she had a bunny in her boobs
2: in her cleavage you know i actually think if she was holding it though it might have been in her like think about how soothing that like skin to skin would be like rabbits can be quite skittish like
0: you feel bad for the poor rabbit she like just put it cruelly out into the world and made it run it was probably really scared it's a big crowd
2: no no it was okay no here's what i think happened like, she had this rabbit, it got used to her heartbeat and everything else, it might have been slightly tame, and then she let it go into the world, and the rabbit did her a solid, and then, you know, one of her friends picked up that rabbit later. Like, Sir Taurus's white stag, I bet this is Boudica's white bunny or something. Or brown bunny. I bet this is Boudica's brown bunny.
0: I don't know what color the bunny was, but I do know that it was definitely in her boobs, because that is absolutely attested in the history.
2: <laughs> in the history, Jen's told us, which is not at all true, it's fine. The dubious history. The Spartans had shirt foxes, and the Britons had boob bunnies. I
0: now really want like Jay
2: to make us a design that just boob by booting his boob bunny. <laughs>
0: yeah, just like massive cleavage with a rabbit. In it. And you know what? I feel like this has been done by playboy oh dear that's not where i intended to take this i'm done i'm done <laughs> anyway so according to dio budica released her poor little half team boob bunny into the cold cold world in this crowd of loud people who were screaming at it to see where it would run to and of course it was fucking terrified it just ran wherever it felt like it could run but that was considered an auspicious direction that sent the message that the gods were smiling on this rebellion so, Boudica also invokes Androsti, a warrior goddess and supposedly the patron goddess of the Iceni. Dio gives Boudica this moment of divination and association with Androste for a lot of reasons. We're going to get into the reasons. So, reason number one. The Romans, the real audience for the speech, because that's who Daya was writing for, the Romans were superstitious. And the idea that Boudicca got a clear sign of victory would have carried a lot of weight with a Roman audience. They would have seen this sign that Boudicca's early victories were a dead certainty. It was foretold by the gods. And that way, they didn't have to feel so bad about themselves for doing so bad against Boudicca initially.
2: But also, most importantly, it would excuse them for doing so little for the people in the areas because... The reality is that we'll come to a little bit later when we talk about what happened in Camelodunum and Londinium. They were severely understaffed and the Romans made conscientious choices not to send recruits. And that resulted in a lot of human casualties. But if Dio was telling us the rabbit went in the direction of victory for Boudica, well, it makes sense those generals didn't send any more people. They would have just lost anyway. Yeah. Here's the other thing. In this speech, Dio gives Boudica the divinatory powers of a druidess, perhaps the sleight of hand powers of one too, and/or the powers of a priestess of Andraste. And this would have sent the message to Roman readers that Boudica was more than just a woman. And we talked about this in our last episode. But it was very, very, very important to the Roman audience that Boudica come down through history as a big, bad, scary other. Because the idea that she was a clever, normal woman who took up arms and sacked three Roman cities and wiped out a legion was terrifying. So she had to be more than just a mere woman. She had to be a druidess.
0: This style of divination, like an animal going in an auspicious direction, strikes me as a lot more Roman than druidic. It's so Roman. Everything about it is Roman. I will pause and say that we don't actually know what druidic is because we have no record of how the druids worshipped or what their divination process looked like. But I feel like that this is more like I've seen Romans do this thing with animals behaving in certain ways. And that's kind of a sign. So I think, again, this is very much for a Roman audience. They're saying, oh, this is what a druidist does. It's not necessarily what a druidist does.
2: No, they have no idea. They're just making it up as they go along because the druids never shared their secrets with them and the druids didn't write it down. That was how the Druids worked. But again, the important thing here is that Boudicca is other. And the sign that Dio is showing us that Boudicca's army would have these early victories can be very clearly interpreted by the Roman audience as this was fated to happen. There was nothing we could do.
0: So that was how Boudica roused her army to battle, according to Dio. We don't know exactly how big Boudicca's army was. Dio tells us that her army was made up of 120,000 people... But this is clearly a gross exaggeration. We do know that Boudicca's army wasn't just combatants. It was made up of men, women, and children, not just warriors. But 120,000 people is one of those round ancient world numbers that we don't know. It's a little bit too it's a little bit too even. Doesn't quite work out. We talked about this in the
2: Spartacus series we had last season. Whenever you see those big round numbers, someone is lying. Like it's just it's not real. It's an inflated thing to either make Boudica's army looks so big and so massive that, of course, that's why they were so successful and the Romans weren't.
0: They build up their enemies to aggrandize themselves. That's like a big feature of how Romans describe their own wars. Anyway, so Boudicca and her army made their way towards Camelodenum. They sacked and burned every town along the way that wasn't allied with them. They were terrifying, but they were not moving that fast. They had a lot of non-combatants. They had an unwieldy baggage train. This was an army you could see coming from a long way off. You could see it and also you could
2: hear it. This was, they were not a stealthy, organized army.
0: No. So the citizens of Camelodunum knew this army was coming and they had time to prepare. You know it's going to hit you, but it's not going to show up for a few weeks. I'd be running it anywhere I could get to get out of town. Just hit the sauce, Jen. That's all you can do. (laughs) (laughs) I mean it would help (laughs) so anyway moving on as boudicca's army approached camelodunum a rash of signs importance broke out that did not bode well for their town here's what happened according to tacitus quote Meanwhile, for no apparent reason, the Statue of Victory at Camelodunum fell, with its back turned as if in retreat from the enemy. Women converted into maniacs by excitement, because that's what happens when women get excited.
2: Boobs out. <laughs> sticks in my hair, I'm gonna
0: <laughs> rip an animal to pieces.
2: Oh yeah, once the boobs come out and the sticks go in my hair, you're all in trouble.
0: Full on main ad. Anyway, so women converted into maniacs by excitement, because that's always what happens. Cried that destruction was at hand and that alien cries had been heard in the invader's senate house, the theater had rung with shrieks, and in the estuary of the Thames had been seen a vision of the ruined colony. Again, that the ocean had appeared blood-red and that the ebbing tide had left behind it what looked to be human corpses, were indications read by the Britons with hope and by the veterans with corresponding alarm. Cassidus tells us that all
2: signs' importance pointed to shit going down at Camulodunum, and that shit was not going to be good. Again, these details are being told to us after the fact, and the Romans love to big up those signs' importance. But a part of me really does trust Tacitus here. The Romans who survived Boudicca's sacking would definitely have told some wild stories, and it does not surprise me that they would have reported these back to their family and loved ones. Did everything happen exactly the way Tacitus reported? I mean, no, probably not. We'll never know. But we do know that the Romans in Britain had been given a clear warning, according to what they told their loved ones and eventually made its way to Tacitus. Their gods were telling them a reckoning is on its way. So, with Boudicca's epic army on its way, the people of Camelodunum had few options. Those with wealth and power, most likely fled across to Gaul. Those with ties further into the province might have fled further inland, hoping to take refuge in the city of Londinium or somewhere further west. But those without money and with nowhere else to go would have found themselves with only two options. Hope against hope to hold off Boudicca's army and save their city, or throw themselves upon the mercy of Boudicca and her rebels. Neither option was a good one. And those without money would have been people who might have only reluctantly sided with the Romans or been enslaved by the Romans.
0: So we've talked about siege warfare before. Our very first episode on this podcast is called How to Survive a Siege. And we did a two-part series on what happens if your city gets sacked in the ancient world. How do you survive? Like, this is a thing... People dealt with all the time back then. So cities that were sacked in the ancient world were often razed to the ground by fire, and the people inside massacred. Those who weren't immediately massacred were subject to rape and enslavement. You have to feel a certain amount of terror for the people of Camelodunum. They would have known about the approaching army. Those who could flee had probably fled. Those left had nowhere else to go many of them were probably British themselves. Some of them were British women who had been bought in slavery and then married Roman veterans or, you know, auxiliary veterans. So these were women who were not there by choice, who were also British women. And maybe their children. Their Romano-British children, which I'm sure Boudicca wouldn't have much sympathy for, but they'd have very little choice as to their circumstances. And I will say that we don't Like we see mention of like British wives of these veterans and I don't know that it necessarily says that they were enslaved and bought but that is a pattern that we see a lot so we can only assume that that is what is happening here a lot of the time.
2: Yeah I think the important thing here is that we don't know exactly what camelodenum would have looked like. So we're going off of research we know about Hadrian's Wall and we're going off what we know at the time. So we know that this is how The cities and colonies would have been set up. So while we can't 100% say it would have been this way, the reality is it probably would have been this way. I can't tell you 100% it would have been this way. Because, number one, that research doesn't exist. And number two, like, they're finding new things out every day.
0: Yeah. Anyway, other people who would have found themselves in Camelodunum staring down the barrel of Boudicca's army would have been people from conquered tribes, conquered British tribes, and those who had decided to ally with Rome, possibly reluctantly, people trying to figure out how to live in this newly Roman world, in a place that used to be theirs, but where they no longer felt they belonged. So the people of Camelodunum appealed to their procurator. Their procurator just happened to be the guy who actually had lit the flame of Boudicca's Rebellion. That's right. Decius Catus. Catinus, Tenth of his name. And... Cadus badly misjudged the situation. Shocker. I'm shocked. Oh, my God. Look at that. Decianus Cadus has misjudged a situation. (laughs) This is a shock of the century. So Tacitus tells us, quote, The people of Camelodunum applied for help to the procurator Cadus Decianus. Gaddis sent not more than 200 men without their proper weapons, and this is 200 men under-equipped to face down an army of 120,000. In addition, there was a small body of troops in the town. Relying on the protection of the temple, and hampered also by covert adherents of the rebellion who interfered with their plans, these troops neither secured their position by Fosse or Rampart, so they didn't build any additional defenses, is what Tacitus was saying, Nor took steps by removing the women and the aged to leave only able bodied men in the place. So the people of Camelodunum were as carelessly guarded as if the world was at peace when they were enveloped by a great barbarian host. All else was pillaged or fired in the first onrush. Only the temple in which the troops had massed themselves stood a two days siege and was then carried by storm.
2: So let's break this down. The poor people of Camelodunum, who weren't able to flee, applied to the Roman procurator to protect them.
0: And he was like the worst person possible to apply to for protection. But you can see what's
2: going on with the people of Camillagenham. They're like, here's the thing, guy, we've paid you taxes. The Romano-British were like, we've surrendered land and maybe given up some of our freedom all of our freedom, maybe? And the retired soldiers were like, hey, wasn't this the protection that we fought and bled for, you know, when we were serving the empire? Weren't we supposed to have peace in our retirement?
0: Those tribal people would have been like, wasn't the one thing that the Romans promised us protection? It was a whole racket. That was
2: like the early mafia. You pay us, we give you protection, all your enemies go away. And they're like, but our enemies are, they're, they're coming. But,
0: what, no? So... (laughs) Buttigieg's army's at the gate, and they're like, okay, so... Is this not a scenario where we're supposed to have that theoretical protection? Is this not it? Like, does this meet the criteria? So the Romano-British and the veterans were, like, united on one side here for once, I guess. Exactly.
2: Because their procurator, their cat anus...
0: Tenth of his name!
2: (laughs) Here's what he actually did. He sent 200 under-equipped troops to defend a city without walls against an army of 120,000. And then... Cadenus fled the country. And Tastus tells us this in a later paragraph, which I've not included, that he took a boat and sailed to Gaul because he knew that the citizens of Camelodunum were no match for Boudicca's army, and he wasn't about to get massacred at the hands of the people he'd oppressed. I mean, no, no, that sounds like a bad Tuesday. And, you know, this is just further proof that Cadis is the worst. As if you need further proof of that. I mean, look, I just proved my theory, okay? I feel like I have to show my work here.
0: Is that your graduate-level thesis? Cadis is the worst. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> I mean, no, the worst is actually Theseus, but, you know. Anyway, Boudicca's epic army raged across the countryside, burning, looting, and ravaging everything it touched. The sound of war horns blew. The cries and songs of war wafted on the breeze ahead of the army. The people of Camelodunum were now out of options.
0: The people of Camelodunum also knew that they were fairly defenseless on a military level. So their city did have some defensive dikes, I guess, that had been built in the Iron Age and pre-Roman times at some point. But this city did not have defensive walls. It was pretty exposed. But there was one building in the new town that might have given some people a chance if they could get to it and take refuge there. That building was quite possibly the most hated one in town, the Temple of the Deified Claudius. The temple had walls, high, strong walls. It was a new building in good repair, it had a pair of giant, thick, strong doors, and it might have been the most defensible location in the city. It's possible... Those taking refuge there thought that they could hold it, at least until reinforcements arrived, if they ever did. But I think that once this got started, they thought that reinforcements were coming, right? And I don't know why they would have thought that, because they sent a message to Caddiness, and Caddiness totally let them down. So I guess a different message went out at some point.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think they really believed that reinforcements—I mean, this is what I think, but I could be wrong— that reinforcements were coming, that they wouldn't be left high and dry, that all they had to do was hold the city— They were soldiers. They they had nowhere else to go, especially if they were auxiliaries. Like, there was nowhere else for them to peace out to.
0: Some message might have gone up over Caddis' head at some point, and people had reason to believe that the Roman army was going to come and help these veterans, at least, because they're veterans. So anyway, the new Roman town of Camelodunum was perfectly gridded out. With densely populated streets, the Romans had redone this town when they moved in. It had densely populated streets lined with shops that sold Roman luxuries to the Roman veterans, and it had like a, a regular grid system of streets. When Boudica's army hit Camelodunum, the precisely laid out, easy-to-navigate streets made it easy for them to roll through the town, efficiently setting buildings and whole neighborhoods on fire. Then, Boudicca's army got to the Temple of Claudius, where many of the townspeople were hiding. I'd love to tell you that the people who took refuge in the hated Temple of Claudius were able to survive. That when Boudicca's army arrived, they flung open the doors of the temple and threw themselves upon the floor at her feet, begging for mercy. I'd love to tell you that Boudicca was a merciful queen. A queen who saw so many women, children, and non-combatants hiding out in a temple and spared their lives. But history doesn't work that way. And to be honest,
2: Boudicca wasn't in a position to spare anyone. Everyone who had colluded with Rome, everyone who had sided with the oppressor was an enemy in her eyes. This war she was waging could end only one way for her, in total victory or total elimination. Anything else would result in her and her army facing a loss of their homeland and a lifetime of Roman bondage. The only options for Boudicca and her rebels were victory or death.
0: So when Boudicca's army got to the Temple of Claudius, they tried to break down the doors, but the doors were too strong. So they climbed onto the roof of the temple, peeled back the carefully laid Roman tiles, and rappelled down inside. Then they slaughtered the townspeople and ransacked the temple. They found the giant statue of Claudius, the hated colonizer who had taken their land and imposed Roman rule. They beheaded the statue. And remember, these were a culture of people who believed in taking the heads of their enemies, so they beheaded the statue of Claudius. The head of Claudius' statue was found in 1907 by swimmers in the River Ald. And the River Ald, how far away is it from Camelodonum Jan? I think it's something like 60 miles. Yeah, so they didn't just behead the statue and just chuck it somewhere. Like, somebody carried it there and threw it in the river, right?
2: Someone carried it somewhere. We Do we know that it was there or that it wound up there after Boudicca's armies disbanded? Or when the Romans had colonized them or that it was hidden there or that there was a sacred grove there at some point in time? It is difficult to figure out exactly how it got there. Like, it could have been that it was with the army and that it was at some point in time buried there or sacrificed in a grove there. or. Over the nearly 2,000 years, rolled down into the river from somewhere else it was being hidden. We just don't know. No one can say definitively that it was brought and chucked into a river.
0: Mm, okay. Anyway, so it was found in 1907, almost 2,000 years-ish later, by swimmers in the River Ald. The people who found it took it home and put it in their garden as an ornament. Thankfully, years later, it was identified as what's believed to be the severed head of the statue of Claudius from Camelodunum, And it now resides in the British Museum. No doubt haunting those hallowed halls and hanging out with the severed head of Crassus in, in the Parthian Theater Company. In the
2: Parthian Theater Company deciding to put on a like production of the Bacchae. Anytime you need a severed head, one or the other will be there.
0: Yeah. So once they'd sacked the temple and killed everyone inside, possibly, although that's a little bit disputed, but we're assuming Boudicca's army set the temple on fire. Meanwhile, Fires raged throughout the town, all up and down its precisely ordered streets, entombing anyone left alive in ashes. Or did it? So here's where we talk about the bodies at Camelodunum and why there are none. Weird thing about Boudica and this layer of ashes that got laid down at Camelodunum. There's no bodies found in the Boudica burn layer, which we're about to talk about.
2: There are several reasons. Number one, it could be That people saw this slow-moving army and literally noped out.
0: So there was, like, theoretically nobody left in the town except for a few people in the Temple of Claudius, theoretically.
2: Except for the people who couldn't flee, sure. That's a theory. Another theory is that potentially the bodies would have just been left on the ground to... Rot and they may have rotted and decomposed faster because there was no one burying them. We don't believe that Boudicca's army would have built a mass grave and dumped all the bodies in it. They would have just kind of left it there to deteriorate into the ground and get picked over by carrion and all kinds of things that you have left over when you sack a city. If there was a mass grave, it hasn't been discovered yet. There's another thing that it could be. We're going to get there in a minute. So Tacitus tells us that the sack and siege of Camelodunum took two days. We don't know exactly if this is true, but it sounds legit. We do know that what happened in the city was so extreme that it scarred the landscape of Britain. You can still see a red-pink layer of destruction in the archaeology that dates back to Boudica's time period, which is the 60s AD. And it's called the Boudica Burn Layer, or the Boudica Destruction Horizon.
0: That is so hardcore.
2: It really is. According to Vanessa Collingridge, this is the story that archaeology tells us about the Budican burn layer. Quote, The Budican destruction horizon is a layer of burned red earth at a uniform level in the soil that corresponds with the period of around 60 to 61 AD, varying in depth from half a meter or more to just a few centimeters and containing a range of deposits including fragments of pottery, tiles, and other building debris. It provides a fascinating slice in time and a crucial marker for archaeologists. The pinky red horizon is still clearly visible in the basement storeroom of Colchester's George Hotel. Like a poor man's Pompeii, the destruction horizon has preserved some of the more intimate details of everyday life in early Roman Camelodenum, which have allowed archaeologists to reconstruct glimpses of what it must have been like to live in the town around the time of Boudicca's rebellion. The depth and spread of the layer also underlies just how intent on destruction Boudica's forces really were. It was no mean feat to turn Camulodunum into a raging inferno as most of the buildings were made of plaster walls and tiled roofs that were not easily combustible. Far from their traditional image of being chaotic undisciplined fighters, the Britons must therefore have made a very deliberate, well-planned, and systematic effort to set the buildings on fire to ensure the maximum amount of
0: destruction. And those who didn't die in the fires at Kamala Dunham, who weren't killed in the siege and the violence that ensued, possibly faced a terrible fate. So we're going to get into that fourth reason we didn't find bodies in the ground in the Boudicca destruction horizon. And this is a little bit spurious because it comes to us from Cassius Dio, who just loves to give gory, gory details, but we're going to just tell you what it is. So according to Cassius Dio, Boudicca and her army engaged in some really dark fucking hardcore metal shit. Quote, Those who were taken captive by the Britons were subjected to every known form of outrage. The worst and most bestial atrocity committed by their captors was the following. They hung up naked the noblest and most distinguished women, and then cut off their breasts and sewed them to their mouths in order to make the victims appear to be eating them. Afterwards, they impaled the women on sharp skewers run lengthwise through the entire body. All this they did to the accompaniment of sacrifices, banquets, and wanton behavior, not only in all their other sacred places, but particularly in the Grove of Andraste. This was their name for victory, and they regarded her with most exceptional reverence. I mean, I don't know, man, this is some real dark shit, and Tacitus doesn't tell us details like this. Dio is not the closest source to the action here. Dio loves a salacious detail. You have to wonder about this stuff. Like, it might have been just crazy rumors. Here's my push and pull with this paragraph, Jen. On the one hand, I would like to believe that Boudicca would never have done such horrible things to women. I want to believe that. Right. She and her daughters had just experienced horrors inflicted on them by the Romans, and would she have been so quick to do this to other women? I mean, I'd like to think not. But here's the other thing. Dio specifies that These were high-ranking women from the community who probably wouldn't have been native British women. They might have been Roman women, the wives of commanders who had been brought there from other places in the empire. They probably weren't local if they were high-ranking is my guess. I don't know that, but it's my guess. I think she, you know, might have felt like she was justified in doing this to Romans as opposed to native British people. I don't necessarily see her extending a lot of mercy to native British people who she saw as colluders with the Romans either. The picture's real muddy here for me. And the other thing is that, like, I don't think historians 100% agree as to whether the Celts actually did practice human sacrifice, but Celtic cultures had a lot of deviant burials. And we kind of break that down more in our episode about the Celts, which is called Everything Belongs to the Brave. But it's possible, given all those deviant burials, that human sacrifice was a thing that they did and which case they might have wanted to make sacrifices to Andrasti for giving them this glorious victory. Even if they didn't sacrifice every single person in the town, there might have been human sacrifices of captives from the town.
2: I think this is super important to think about these human sacrifices. If you're to believe that Boudica and her tribe and everyone else were horrified by the Romans and everything that had happened to them, and they kind of saw this as the end of their world... What wouldn't you give and sacrifice to get rid of the Romans?
0: And that's kind of what the human sacrifice is for.
2: Exactly. So in that instance, I'm like, maybe they did have some human sacrifices if they really believed it would help them get rid of the oppressors.
0: And in Oak Groves, which is a detail that druids did things in Oak Groves. Yeah,
2: I mean... The eating of the breast is weird to me, but I don't really understand it. Yeah, the breast eating, like I at the impaling. It's just the weird sewing their mouths to their boobs so it looks like they're eating. I don't, I, I don't quite get what that is, if there's something we're missing in some translation somewhere. It's really fucking
0: weird is what it is.
2: It's so weird. And here's the other thing. Why is Dio giving us these particular details? There's a lot of things to unpack. Like, look, if you and I can accept that butica and her people are fighting for their homeland and there is nothing and no one they won't sacrifice to get rid of these romans to get them out of their country and to have everything back the way that it was before they came right to get rid of the roman plague
0: sure let's go with that
2: we can agree with that and if that included human sacrifices you kind on their side a little bit right i mean okay yeah no we're not, definitely on team don't kill other humans but
0: we're definitely on the team don't brutalize women in general don't don't engage in human
2: sacrifices like all those things but you can see a justification in their minds there
0: especially if we're going with the idea that human sacrifice was indeed part of celtic culture sure we can see what might have led them to do that and we could say okay maybe i believe it i don't love that about this story but maybe i believe that it happened
2: I don't either, and I've got two things to say. That would explain where some of the bodies went, but not all of the bodies. Number one. And number two, this is the most important thing. Always remember who's telling you the story. Dio is giving us these details. He does not need to vilify Boudicca and her rebels to this level. This is way too much. Just the total, like, burning of camelodenum, everything they did. That's enough to make Romans fear her, right? He's painting this picture of the rebel army. That can only serve one purpose for a colonizer, to show how important and right it was, that the Romans eventually subjugated them. Because people who behaved like this, well, that was just not civilized, right? It wasn't, Romans wouldn't do this, they didn't do human sacrifices, gladiatorial matches. Of course not, no, totally civilized. Please note the sarcasm. So part of the reason Dio is showing this to the Roman reader is he's giving the roman reader this kind of moral equivocal out like it's okay that we subjugated them and that we're gonna like kill them all and be in charge because people like this like they can't rule themselves like look at the crazy stuff they're getting up to
0: yeah you could be justified in doing anything at all to people who are willing to behave like this that's the thought process
2: and that is some dark ass colonial bullshit yeah And again, we don't know that the people actually behave this way. We don't exactly know what happened to the bodies. We don't know how many people died at the sacking or siege of Camelodunum because archaeology hasn't given us those answers yet.
0: So before we leave you for the week, I want to tell you the story of the reinforcements which the people sheltered in the Temple of Claudius prayed for. I guess there was some message that was sent over the head of Decianus Catus, tenth of his name. Unclear. However, there were supposed to be more reinforcements over and above the paltry 200 men with no armor or whatever that Caddis sent. These reinforcements would have been the Ninth Legion. This legion was commanded by a man named Petilius Serialis. Tacitus tells us that Serialis and his troops met with Boudicca's troops on their way to Camelodunum, or after the sack of the city, this timeline is fuzzy here. And it did not go well for them. The Ninth Legion was totally wiped out by Boudicca's army. Tacitus tells us, quote, victorious Britons routed the legion and slaughtered the infantry to a man. Serialis with the cavalry escaped to the camp and found shelter behind its fortifications.
2: So after encountering Boudicca's army, an entire legion was in tatters. Its cavalry was hiding behind the walls of a military camp. You know Boudicca and her rebels got that sweet, sweet eagle. The countryside of Essex was burning and Camelodinum, the veterans colony, the capital of Roman Britain, had been scorched off the map. The only hope the Romans had of stopping Boudicca now was to call back Suetonius' forces who were off fighting the Druid Rebellion in Wales. And on the horizon loomed Boudicca's army. They moved slowly and deliberately, with purpose. Everything they touched would be destroyed in fire and blood. This was a cauterizing fire, one that would heal the land of the hated Roman plague. Every Roman they found would be slaughtered, and the fields and hills, valleys and rivers would sing the songs of the old gods. So, That's it for this week.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this week. (laughs) On that
2: cheery note. (laughs) It's always a cheery
0: note. Like, I feel like we're always saying the same exact thing at the end, which was like, well, that was dark. (laughs) (laughs) See you in two weeks. (laughs) I mean, why do people listen to us? I wish we were light. No, the Pictish Beast, we were pretty light. Let's focus on the positive here. (laughs) We'll see you in two
2: weeks. So in the meantime, you can catch up with us on social where at Ancient History fan on Twitter and Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram and Facebook.
0: And um check out our Patreon. So our Patreon is at patreon.com slash Ancient History Fangirl, where you can get extra episodes, bonus episodes. We hang out with Liv from Myths Baby all the time and do drunken myth retellings and it's a ball. You should you should check it out. Come hang out with us.
2: So if you join our Patreon, essentially you can hear us weekly. We put out two Patreon episodes a month in addition to our normal two episodes.
0: You also get those normal two episodes ad-free and about a day before they launch in the main feed. So we have some Patreon shout-outs for today, don't we, John? Mm-hmm. Okay, blanket apology to anyone whose name we mispronounce. Kelly Jar, Kylie. Chad Keithley. Marbles Garbanzo. Liz. Just Liz. Jamie Borassa. Emily Searlate cluck Apologies if I screwed that up. Lucy Sarah. Wolfman the Second, Bailey
2: Blessing Pass.
0: Thank you all so much. We could not do this without you.
2: Thank you so much. You're the reason the podcast is still going. We're three years old. We're a little
0: baby podcast. Oh my god, three years old is a long time. I know we're a toddler. <laughs> Gross. Anyway, thank you for listening and we will see you in two weeks.
1: 18- Plus.